You're listening to the Trinity Ministries podcast. For more information and to support our ministry, go to www.trinityhudson.org. My name is Jessica Polensky, and this is my story. I was diagnosed with stage 3 triple negative breast cancer in early October 2016. This was about three and a half months after I gave birth to our fourth child. This news definitely took me by surprise. Battling cancer was the most difficult thing I have experienced in my life. After my diagnosis, it was seven weeks before treatment began, which then consisted of five months of chemo followed by multiple surgeries. I didn't understand why God would put my family and me through this. I was only 27 and terrified my diagnosis was the start of my end. The biggest stronghold that cancer had on me was fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of what I couldn't control, fear of what was happening in my body, fear of life going on without me, fear of the hurt and loneliness that my husband and children would have to live with. It was difficult to watch my husband and children hurt because they were scared they were losing me. I struggled with the idea of my kids hurting and me not being there to hug and comfort them. I struggled with how this would affect my husband and his future without me. I thought I trusted God with my life and his plan for it, but I wanted his plan to match up with mine. I prayed about this often. It wasn't until I got to the point where I completely submitted and accepted God's will for my life, no matter the future outcome, that I was able to accept my circumstances and move forward with God as my strength. I always thought that I trusted God completely with my life and everything in it, but when death became a real possibility during cancer, I realized that I was holding back. I wanted God to tell me that I was going to be okay that I was going to suffer for a little while, but in the end, I'd be okay. I wanted to know that I would be present to raise my children with my husband. I thought I deserved to see them grow into adulthood at the very least. I was put in my place by being reminded that God doesn't owe me anything. I clung to God during this time and spoke with him often throughout each day, not holding anything back. It was during my cancer that I was able to experience God on a much deeper level. I was able to have moments with him that I couldn't have experienced had I not gone through what I did. I read once that God will not waste our pain, but will use the difficulty of what we walk through for greater good, to bring blessing and freedom to others. I prayed that my own pain and suffering would not go wasted, but that God would use it for his greater good. I am here to do his will, and I trust that he has a plan and a bigger purpose that I am grateful to be a part of. I understood that in order for God to use me, I couldn't hold back any part of my life. I don't know what his plans are for my life, but I trust that he has a plan and that cancer was just a part of it. Once I completely trusted that he had my children's lives in his hands in the same way that he has always had mine, it was then that I felt at peace. I had joy once again, even as I battled my cancer. I was able to praise God and even thank Him for the opportunity to go through the difficult trial of cancer. I was able to understand that through trials we have spiritual growth. God doesn't give His hardest battles to His toughest soldiers. He creates the toughest soldiers through life's hardest battles. I have so much to be thankful for and I am so blessed to be a part of my church family here at Trinity. 
I received an overwhelming amount of love, prayers, and support during the most difficult year of my life. I will trust in His plan and the part that I play in it. I will let go and let God. I'm comforted in knowing that He has complete control of my future. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Jeremiah 29.11 And then Pastor Jim gets to follow that up. That was good. Um, the stories are as many as there are people in this room. And uh, <clears throat> Pastor Todd and I are doing the stories series. And we're letting the, the appointed lessons for the season of Lent be the text that we go to. And then we open up those texts. And we find the stories that are embedded there, the characters. Uh, both of us are preaching this Sunday on the character of Jerusalem, the city. He's pulling it from the gospel lesson, and I'm pulling it from the Old Testament lesson, uh, Jeremiah 29, or 26. I'll, I'll be reading that soon. Um, <clears throat> we have a typewriter here to signify the stories. Uh, the, the, salvation is a story. Uh, it, it had a, a beginning, a plot, an end. It finds its fulfillment in Jesus, and Jesus is still writing his stories through you and through his church. For the sake of the world's reading. So Jeremiah, he's known as the weeping prophet. Why? Because he was tasked by God to be that prophet at that place and time to speak an ultimate judgment on the people of God in, in Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, it wasn't a, a good spot for him to be. He was there to see God's patience finally run out, and he spoke it. And he says that Jerusalem is going to be utterly uninhabited. God is going to destroy Jerusalem. And the people would have none of it. Pfft, that could never happen. Jerusalem being destroyed? You've got to be kidding. And the people rose up against Jeremiah and wanted to kill him. Why... Why Jerusalem? Why did they have such confidence in Jerusalem? I think it was well-earned. It was, a, it was a, a, a good confidence that they had. After all, Jerusalem was the very place where God met his people and he promised to be there. And it goes all the way back to coming out of um, Egypt's slavery. And he led them through Moses' leadership to Mount Sinai. And he gave them the Ten Commandments. And he said, follow me. I am your God and you are my people. This is how you're to live. And then he created a covenant system around them that involved the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. A holy God would be with, be present, meet a sinful people. This sinful people could be reconciled to a holy God. How? By God's grace, through a means of grace through the shedding of blood, the sacrifice of animals. This was a gracious thing God was doing. Sin is that consequential, that hurtful to the heart of God, that blood must be shed. There is penalty to sin. But he's allowing a penalty to be made so that we can be reconciled to this holy God. This was the place. And where did it take place, the shedding of blood? 
in the tabernacle, which was like a, a tent on poles that people would go, would, would take with them as they wandered in the wilderness. In this tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, and in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat where God promised to be, where the blood was poured. Flash forward a few hundred years now, Solomon builds the temple. It's not a tabernacle, it's a temple. But in this temple is the Holy of Holies and is the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, and the sacrifices, the blood is still being shed, and God's promises are as true there and then as they were in the wilderness wanderings with the tabernacle. And this temple was in Jerusalem. So God had put promises to this city because this is where the blood was shed. This is where a holy God met a sinful people, and we were reconciled. The forgiveness of sins happened. Salvation happened. They were confident God would never let this city go. Salvation is at stake. In fact, they had good evidence even of the, of the impervious nature, of the permanent nature of, uh, of Jerusalem. Just a hundred years before, it was a different prophet, Isaiah. A different empire was now coming upon them. In fact, this empire, Assyria, had already conquered the ten tribes of the northern part of Israel, and now we're coming down upon Judah and Jerusalem. They had taken all the cities of Judah, the tribe of Judah, and now... We're coming in, besieging the crown jewel, the last piece, Jerusalem itself. And Isaiah was the prophet. And he prophesied that God's patience had not run out, that the city would be saved. And sure enough, an angel of the Lord slew thousands and thousands of soldiers of the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrian king had to slink back to his empire and leave Jerusalem unconquered. That's about 100 years before Jeremiah. So now Jeremiah comes and says, it's going to be conquered. As soon as Jeremiah finished telling the people everything the Lord had commanded him to say, the priests, the prophets, and all the people seized him and said, you must die. Why do you prophesy in the Lord's name that this house will be like Shiloh and the city will be desolate and deserted? And all the peoples crowded around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the officials of Judah heard about these things, they went up from the royal palace to the house of the Lord and took their place at the entrance of the new gate of the Lord's house. Then the priests and the prophets said, said to the officials and all the people, this man should be sentenced to death because he has prophesied against this city you have heard it with your own ears. You see, the, the people of God, they had confidence in Jerusalem and in the promises of God, and yet they had taken advantage of those promises. So much so that they had even converted the temple into a pagan megachurch. They brought in pagan idols and even practice pagan worship right there in the temple of God. What a mockery. And yet they consider, well, God won't touch this. He put a promise here. We can do anything we want. So I'm going to challenge us now. We're going to bring it 2019 here. What is your Jerusalem? What is the thing 
that you think is, it's your religious token, that it just has God's back, or God has its back, uh, it won't ever be shaken. You can find a lot of spiritual strength and, and, and kind of protection there, and you can just run with it because it, it's, it's permanent, it's impervious to God's judgment. We're talking idolatries at this point. What are some of the idols that you have? And let's kind of start big, the ones you've heard before. Your 401ks. Now, you know these things aren't religious by nature, but they have a lot of religious import to you. You find your protection and your trust and your hope in these things. They become idols. Um, kids. Your own children become extensions of you. There's a lot of narcissism in our culture today, and I see it in the parenting. That bad parenting is springing from idolatry, a narcissistic place. Ego, your own reputation. Sports. You put ten pastors up here and ask them, what are the top three idols of our culture right now? And ten of them are going to say sports. Okay, let's move on to something religious. Actually, religious. Buildings. Okay. This is my church. It's been here a hundred years. I love this place. Don't change the carpet. Pastors. You're loyal to that pastor. Over and above your loyalty to the kingdom of God or what the church, you know, is doing in its kingdom work. Your own history in a church. We're four generations deep in this church. How come nobody's listening to us? Um, philosophy of ministry. Let's be truly Lutheran. Ah, let's not worry about the Lutheran. Let's just be Christian. And those philosophies of ministry can really trip up and divide a church. We can make idols of those things. How about the styles of worship. And don't you think that the traditional people are the more stubborn in this way? There's a lot of idolatry on both sides of this worship spectrum, contemporary versus traditional. Okay, I probably haven't really hurt you that much yet. How about this? Let's go real deep. What is the equivalent to Jerusalem in our Christian walk with God? I even feel uncomfortable saying this. In fact, I ran it by a few pastors and their eyebrows raised. And then I explained to where I was going to go with it. And they thought, okay, that, that's good. That's biblical. I think a Jerusalem in our walk is baptism. Now let me explain. There, is, there are promises attached to baptism. And there are promises attached to Jerusalem. We have good reason to be confident in these things. Just like Jerusalem was the place where God had shed blood and the forgiveness of sins happened there. He put promises in that city, in that temple. Same is true in baptism. Peter says baptism saves you. Paul says that don't you know that you who have been baptized have been crucified with Christ, you've been buried with Christ, you've been made new in Christ? Jesus' last words were go and baptize people. 
There's confidence that we can put in baptism because the shed blood is there as it was in Jerusalem. There it was uh, bulls and, and lambs. Here it is the once and for all sacrifice. Jesus himself is given to us in the waters of baptism. Blood is shed, but it's graciously poured upon us in water and in the name of the Trinity. There is all the reason in the world to be confident that there's salvation in baptism because it connects a holy God to a sinful people. And through Jesus, which is what is given to us in baptism, we are reconciled. But, but, uh, there's some idolatry, I think, that happens with our reliance on baptism sometimes. You know, the, uh, <clears throat> um, back in the day in Jeremiah's time and even before that, like I said, they brought in pagan worship into the very temple of God and they mocked God. Perhaps we do the same thing with our own living. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the, one of the promises of baptism is God puts a seal of the Holy Spirit upon you. We become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And yet we may go and live pagan lives. How does that happen? Does it happen because we have a misplaced, a false confidence in baptism in the sense of it being fire insurance? I got baptized, check off, I'm a Christian, I did my religious duty, I can now go and be the world. I can do it and fit in the world just like everybody else does. You know, the Baptist, evangelicals, if you join their church, most likely you're going to have to be rebaptized as an adult because they don't consider your infant baptism to have counted. I entirely disagree with that, I don't think it's biblical. You start scratching that surface when you start conversing about how come. At the very base of that is a fear that when you baptize children, you are giving them fire insurance. You're giving them permission now to just kind of be them, do whatever they want because after all they're saved. They checked that off their list and now they can do whatever they want. That's their fear. A deep, deep fear. It's been going on for hundreds of years. I'm going to suggest that where there's smoke, there's fire. And maybe the Baptists have seen too many Lutherans, too many Catholics, too many Presbyterians and Methodists and all the other denominations that practice infant baptism. They've seen too many of infant baptizing Christians live like the pagans. Not following Christ, but just fitting into the world. They've seen a misplaced confidence in that ritual that they checked off, hey, I got baptized. You see where I'm coming with? Uh, Jerusalem might be our baptism. There's reason for confidence in baptism. And don't let me, I'm not saying at all, I'm diminishing baptism in its power at all. I'm thinking it's those who don't understand the power of baptism are the ones who misuse it. In fact, 
Paul, in Romans chapters 3 through 5, he's talking about all of us who have sinned and all of us need the grace of God and it's only by the grace of God that he, does he come to us and save us. We live entirely on God's grace. And then in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Therefore, what should we do then? Keep sinning so that grace may abound? Now, he's being sarcastic, but he kind of knows where the unsaved logic goes. Oh, if we live on God's grace, well, heck, we can keep on sinning. Hey, I've been baptized. I can keep on sinning. Paul then says, no, absolutely not, exclamation mark, you know, if he was doing it in English, modern English today. And then immediately he goes into the talk of baptism. Don't you know that all of you have been baptized into Christ? You've been buried with Christ. And as Christ has been raised from the dead, so you too now live a new life. You've died to that way of life. You've died to sin. When Jesus died, you died. You're a new person now because he's been raised. What happens to Jesus happens to you. That's the power of baptism. You're new. How can you go to that old life anymore? You're saved. Don't live as the unsaved. I'm going to finish my sermon with an analogy here. I, I use this on confirmation class and new member classes. I've got here a gold ring on my finger. Oh, are you married? Yep, I'm married. I say. Present tense. I am married. That's how we say it, right? I'm married. Present tense. Now, this ring, though, was put on my finger on August 25th, 1990. So, I was married also. They're both true. A historic moment I can look back and say, I was married on August 25th, 1990. Promises were made. Now that historic moment, those promises had repercussions the next day and the next day, the next year, the next few decades, right? These things add up. Every day I wake up married. I am married. And my whole life changes and the decisions I make are revolving around that historic moment that took place on August 25th, 1990. But we say, I am married even though it was a moment, too. Oh, are you baptized? Yeah, I was baptized, we say. Why is our language changing? We say, I am married, but when it's referring to baptism, we say, yep, I was baptized, as if I was baptized. Check off. Now, you were baptized at a, a certain place and time, the, 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 the pastor spoke the name of the Trinity upon you and baptized you with water and you were baptized and you can go back and see the pictures and the, the church will have it recorded. You were baptized. But God's people see it as I am baptized. It's a way of life because in your baptism you are now made a brother and a sister of Jesus and of each other. You're a child of the Heavenly Father. You've been brought into the kingdom and you've been pulled out of darkness into the marvelous light of God's salvation. You're saved. You're forgiven. You've been set aside now to represent Jesus each and every day. You've been called to forgive as you've been forgiven and to love as you've been loved and to serve as you've been served by God. To be a gracious people because you've been so graced by Him. You're saved. You're at peace. This is what happened to you. This is what gets lived out today, tomorrow, all the other days 
of your baptism. You are a baptized people. You are connected into God's salvation story through the very blood of Jesus himself. May all of God's people live comfortably in these walls of Jerusalem, so to speak, these walls of baptism, but to do so confidently in God's grace, not in a sense of mockery of God, a false spiritual security or a laziness, but rather one that gets to gladly and joyfully, confidently live, live out Jesus for the sake of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, we praise you for the shed blood of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We thank you that 2,000 years later across the globe, that that Jesus, his life, death, resurrection can be given to us in baptism and that each and every day we can live out, live out the calling to be his follower. Holy Spirit, so fill us and energize us that we can follow Jesus for your glory and for the extending of the kingdom. Save us, O God, from religious idolatry, religious tokenism where we start mocking the things of God. Help us, Lord, to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And uh, we rise to receive his blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you his peace. 